Father, we thank you so much for what Amy shared with us just a few moments ago regarding the work that's going on through Friends of Sinners, and especially the privilege of praying for the ladies who are involved in that program now. We thank you for what Lisa and Chris and Amy have been able to do and other churches that are partnered with that ministry to help disciple and uh, just as many of these ladies have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so it is our joy to come alongside them and help them to walk in, them, walk in him and to be rooted and established in him and built up in him. So we pray that you would bless all that our ladies are striving to do and that you would increase their number, that you would incline the hearts of other sisters to, um, to want to love and follow Christ in this way, even as we were reflecting at the turn of the year on the importance of Following you means helping others follow you. And so we pray that others would step forward and say, hey, I want to I follow Jesus as I help other people follow him. So, Lord, would you incline some hearts uh, in that direction even this morning. Thank you for the opportunity now to come to your word and to conclude this series on the Ten Commandments. We pray that you would seal all of this to our hearts as we've considered what your law has to say to us. We recognize that it's a mirror. It's held up to us and reveals to us our sinfulness. And it drives us to a Savior. And that we thank you that we have a Savior who has fulfilled the law, kept it for us. And therefore, by faith in him, we are justified apart from works of the law, but by faith alone in him. And that as a result of being justified and having new hearts with your law written on them, we have a desire to walk with you and follow you and obey you. So teach us what that would look like this morning. Teach us what it means to have grace-fueled obedience to your word as we contemplate this final word of you shall not covet. We ask all this for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever stopped to think how easy it is to break the Tenth Commandment? Thou shalt not covet. Think about it with me. Kevin DeYoung, in his helpful book on the subject of the Ten Commandments, helps unpack something of what it means to keep this command. When he says, Moses writes under God's instruction, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. So you visit her home the first time and coming away thinking, boy, she's got a lot of nice stuff. I wish my house could be decorated like hers. I wish I could live in that 3,500 square foot home and she could live in my 1,200 square foot hole in the wall. We live in a dump. It's embarrassing. Life must be pretty nice in a house like that. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Here comes that thought. Why did I marry my wife? That other wife over there is always so friendly and her kids are perfect and their house is always immaculate. Why couldn't my wife have aged like that? I wish I could be married to someone like her. You shall not covet your neighbor's male servant, his female servant, his ox, or his donkey. It's not fair. All the other families go on great vacations. They go to Disney World. They go see the Grand Canyon. Some of them get to travel to Europe or go on cruises. We just go to grandma's house or the county fair. I ought to be able to take those vacations just like everybody else. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Which of these thoughts have you had? If only I could be smart like him. My life would be so much better if I was shaped like her. Why couldn't I get normal parents like my friends have? Everything in my life is hard, below average, and poor. Everything in their life is easy, above average, and rich. It shouldn't be this way. Oh, how I wish they were them and they were us. Well, have you ever 
recognized yourself in any of those thoughts? Surely we all have. I was thinking about, as I was preparing the sermon this week, this was the very first sentence I wrote, have you ever been discontented? Have you ever wished your life was different? And I would think, has that happened this morning? (laughs) Have you had that thought this morning? Of course you've had the thought of discontentment and wished your life was different. Ever wish that someone else didn't have something because you don't have it, dislike them because they do, or grown bitter with God because he chose to give a blessing to someone else and not to you? All these questions expose the relevance of this 10th commandment to us, the commandment of covetousness against covetousness. Now, the word is not used that often. My guess is that many of you have not heard that word in a long time. We don't go around using the word covet very much. But our culture... It, it, it is driven by and thrives on covetousness. And it's often the sin that's beneath a lot of the other sins. It's, it's sort of the hardware in running the computer. We don't pay much attention to it because it's just always doing its job. But the more we begin to think about it and, and when it goes bad, we begin to see. So this morning we have a very, very relevant command in front of us, the final of the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Commandments, which is you shall not covet. So this morning we're going to consider this commandment under three headings. The first is defining covetousness, and then we're going to come to discerning covetousness, and then finally defeating covetousness. First of all, let's define it. Um, as we've done throughout this series, we've, we've tried to define what we mean by the command, both in its original audience and as well as its larger biblical context. But for right now, before I actually get to the definition of covetousness, I want to, I want to explain something that I think is important. Even though covetousness has to do with desire and strong desire, it does not mean that all desire is wrong. God hardwired us to have strong desires. It, it's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. God is a, is a, is a God who has strong desires. He, he is someone who, 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 who feels things deeply and strongly. However, in his image... We are also those who are made with desires and capacity for desire. And those desires are not wrong and they are not sinful. In fact, sometimes the, the tendency to overcorrect when we hear about covetousness is thinking that covetousness gets defeated by subduing desire. And I don't know if you've tried that recently, but that doesn't happen very easily. I mean, we're not, we're not meant to crush desire or subdue desire. Now, there's sinful desire that's meant to be mortified and killed, but that's not saying that all desire in and of itself is sinful. In fact, the New Testament, Paul writes repeatedly that this impulse to try to suppress desire as a means of godliness is not only not going to work in our fight against sin, it's actually demonic at its root. Let me give you a couple of verses. Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23 Paul writes, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. So the the impulse is, okay, you have a desire to handle that, don't handle it. You have a desire to taste that, don't taste it. You have a desire to touch that, don't touch it. Thinking that just the external thing is is what the point of godliness is. He says, these are according to human precepts and teachings. But verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So what's Paul saying in part? Well, in part he's saying you don't defeat sinful desire by trying to extinguish sinful desire. You have to replace sinful desire 
with a better desire. That's what he's going to get to in latter parts of the book of Colossians. 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 to 5, Paul writes to Timothy and says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So you see, he says, some people are going to come along and say, marriage is bad. It has strong desires built within it. It has sexual desire built within it. You shouldn't do that. Or that's food. I know that God created it to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe in it, but don't do that. That's, you, should, you should stay away from that. It says in verse 4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So if you can bow your head and thank God for it, in Jesus' name, according to his word, then it's created by God. It's good, for it's made holy, verse 5, by the word of God and prayer. So the point is, is that strong desire is expected. In fact, some strong desire is not only expected, it's even commanded. Think about Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Pleasant literally means strong desire. It's the same word that's used here in Exodus 20 about coveting. So in that sense, there are certain things that are appropriate to covet, because coveting, as we're going to see, is just strong desire for something. And there are certain things that are inappropriate to covet. But the things that God has created for our enjoyment to be received with thanksgiving, like he did these trees in the garden in Genesis 2, are not coveting when they go and desire them and take them. That's what they're supposed to do. That's why God made them. Also, marriage is to be strongly desired, as well as the sexuality that is a part of it. Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 3. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great covetousness, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. It's literally with great delight, with strong desire. And that is commended as a good thing. Psalm 19, verse 10 tells us that we're to covet God's word. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. We are to, to, to desire God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16 says that God has created all things richly to enjoy. So the things that God has created, the things that he has told us to have strong desire for, are meant to be strongly desired. They're meant to be appropriately coveted. So what is covetousness then? Well, to covet in a wrong way is to crave, to yearn for, or what my grandparents used to tell me, to hanker after. To hanker after something that belongs to someone else. We covet when we set our hearts on anything that's not rightfully ours. It's not simply wanting something we don't have, it's wanting something that someone else has. It's an inordinate, ungoverned, selfish desire for something. Paul, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, defines covetousness this way. Put to death what is earthly in you, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, comma, which is idolatry. Period. So covetousness is a form of idolatry. How can that be? It's idolatry because the contentment 
that the heart should be getting from God, it begins to get from something else. So covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. Or, to say it differently, losing your contentment in God so that you start to seek it elsewhere. So coveting is desiring anything other than God in a way that betrays a loss of contentment and satisfaction in Him. That's the idea behind covetousness. It's recognizing that there is an idolatrous impulse to seek satisfaction and contentment outside of God and that that must be resisted. Covetousness is a heart divided between two gods. So that's why Paul calls it idolatry. Covetousness is desiring something that God forbids or desiring something more than you desire God himself. It's desiring something that God forbids, like our neighbor's wife, like our neighbor's male, in this context, male servant, female servant, or anything else that belongs to our neighbor. And it's, 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 it's losing our contentment in God as a result of that desire. Do you think of covetousness in terms of idolatry? That might be a new thought to some of us. Colossians 3, 5 says it, but also Romans 1, 28 and 31 say it. Paul writes, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's quite a nasty list. Would you agree? And think about it. Covetousness is right in the middle of it. So we must redefine the way we think about covetousness. It's not some nice, sweet, safe little sin. Paul says it's a sin that's so egregious, it shouldn't even be found in a Christian church. It should be resisted with all its might. It's, it's, it's property of the idolatrous, unbelieving world. It's not even to be named among God's people. He says as much in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Saints don't act like that, Paul says. So we must wage war against it. But like I said at the beginning of the sermon, that's the definition, but the problem is discerning it. It's such a difficult thing to, to, to identify. It's so secret and duplicitous and tricks us and, and has a way of bamboozling us and, and bewildering us that we're not even aware of what it is. So let's, let's run our covetousness through a grid. Okay, let's begin to push down on the Bible and see if it won't yield up some wisdom for us as we seek to discern covetousness. Point number two, discerning covetousness. So we covet then when we are dissatisfied with what we have because someone else has more. But the Bible says that our problem is not that we desire things. In fact, it says, as we've seen, that we should desire things. But the problem is that we desire the wrong things or we desire good things in a wrong way. Okay, so it's both. It's both wrong things that we desire, but it's also good things that we desire, but we go about desiring them wrongly. So what does that mean in the wrong way? How do you know if you're coveting? What does it look like? Well, I want to give us four tests this morning based on four different passages of Scripture. So we're going to go to four different passages quickly and learn what they can teach us about how to discern 
covetousness. They're all in the New Testament. So let's start with James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. If you've got a Bible, you can go there with me. James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. The first mark of discerning covetousness is that you're willing to hurt others to get what you want. You're willing to hurt others to get what you want. This is what James chapter 4 says in the beginning two verses. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So James is asking, okay, the church is fighting. There's Christians that are opposed to each other. What's causing that fight? Notice, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Okay, so it's driven by desire. Okay, what's underneath? So we've got a, a fight and a conflict, and underneath that is a de- desire. But what's feeding the desire? Look at verse 2. You desire and do not have. So that's what's driving the desire. Something you don't have that you want, and you're willing to fight over it. You desire and do not have, so you murder. That is, you slander, you gossip, you use your words and your tongue, according to James 3, in a way that's unfit for a kingdom, the kingdom of God and reveals that you're not a believer, or at least may not be. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So behind the quarrels is desire. Behind the desires is not having what you want. And behind not having what you want is the sin of covetousness. So, so often in the church, conflicts are being driven by breaking of the 10th commandment. That's what's feeding them. That's what's driving them. So discerning covetousness starts by, am I a fighter? Am I willing to hurt others to get what I want? Am I willing to go to battle and fight over things? Do you have a whatever it takes to get ahead attitude? Do you hurt others in order to get more for yourself? That is driven by James 4, 1 and 2. And that's one way we can discern the presence of covetousness in our hearts. Secondly, Matthew 13. Let's go to the Gospels and the words of Jesus now. We're going to see a few different examples in, in, in Christ's teaching. We'll start with Matthew 13. The second is you're preoccupied with accumulation. That is getting more. So Matthew 13, 1 through 9. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into the boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Verse 7, Other seeds fell among thorns, And the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some thirty, or some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, it's always nice when Jesus gives you the interpretation of the parable. And I want you to see his interpretation of what the seed falling among thorns actually means. Look at chapter 13 and verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So what is being driven there is covetousness. It's someone who wants the world, wants the riches of the world, wants the things of the world, and as a result, it's choking the 
fruit of the word of God in the life of the person. So this person would be marked by a preoccupation with the cares of the world and the concerns of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, which would be a preoccupation with accumulation. So while the word covetousness is not here, clearly that's what's going on in the heart. Nelson Rockefeller, the famous millionaire, was once asked, how much money does it take to be happy? Do you know what his reply was? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And that's, that's the way the covetous heart operates. So number one, you're willing to hurt others to get what you want. Number two, you're preoccupied with accumulation. Number three, you're disinclined to give up what you have. You're disinclined to give up what you have. Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. This is the famous story. Many of you are, know of this story of the Jesus and the rich young ruler. It's really just a young man who uh, happened to occupy an important role in society, so we call him the rich young ruler. And we see what's operating in his heart here in verses 17 through 22 of Mark chapter 10. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, and now he's going to list some of the ten. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Which one did he happen to leave out? The one we're considering this morning. That is coveting. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So we see here that a disinclination to give up what we have when we're called upon by Jesus to do so is evidence of a covetous heart. Finally, your sense of security is found outside of God. Look at Luke chapter 12. This will be the last passage we turn to on this subject. Luke chapter 12. And consider Jesus' words in the parable of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd said to him, verse 13, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Would you say that's a heart being driven by covetousness? I think so. I want my share. Give me my share. Verse 14, but he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Notice Jesus doesn't even get involved in that. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought of him to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So he's saying, Look, I've got, I'm set. I'm secure. I've got all, all the stuff I need. I've got more than enough. Ah, I can breathe now. But verse 20, But God said, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So I think there are other passages we could turn to, but these passages give us insight into how to discern covetousness in our hearts. Number one, we're, unwilling, we're willing to hurt others to get what we want. Number two, we're preoccupied with accumulation. Number three, we're disinclined to give up what we have. And number four, our sense of security is found in stuff, not in God. John Piper offers 12, a 12-point 12 diagnosis 
for discerning covetousness, and I'll just read these very quickly to you as a, as a conclusion to this point. He, he's, he's asking the question, how do we know that enjoyment of something is moving into an idolatrous enjoyment? Or in other words, how do we know when desire is becoming, becoming coveting? Number one, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it's forbidden by God. So if we desire something that God clearly forbids, that's clearly wrong and idolatrous. Number two, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it's disproportionate to the worth of what is desired. If a person has ten apples and they give up one apple and they're not even hungry and they're throwing a fit and smashing the other nine apples on the ground, we'd say, whoa, that desire is a little out of proportion there. You know, So sometimes the anger that we feel or the passion that we feel over the worth of something when it's not worth much, reveals a heart of covetousness. Number three, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it's not permeated with gratitude, when there's not a thankfulness about the enjoyment. Number four, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it does not see in God's gift that God himself is more to be desired than the gift. Number five, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it starts to feel like a right and our delight becomes a demand. Number six, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it draws us away from our other responsibilities. Number seven, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it awakens a sense of pride that we can experience this delight while others can't. Number eight, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it's oblivious or callous to the needs and desires of others. Number nine, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it does not desire that Christ be magnified as supremely desirable through the enjoyment. Number 10, Enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it is not working a deeper capacity for holy delight. Number 11, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when its loss ruins our trust in the goodness of God. Number 12, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when its loss paralyzes us emotionally so that we can't relate lovingly to other people. Listen, if, if God commands us, and he does, to rejoice with those who rejoice, how can a covetous heart do that? when all it wants is what the other person has. You can't rejoice with those who rejoice if you want what they have. So if, you, if a, your coworker gets a promotion that you wanted, you can't rejoice in that because you wanted it. You coveted it. Or if you can't go to a wedding and rejoice in the wedding if you're single and wanted to be married still, or you can't rejoice at a baby if you're struggling with infertility and want what they have, or you can't struggle with you can't rejoice in another person's gift of a good vacation if you're covetous that you didn't get it. So the whole point is there's a range of issues over which covetousness can be detected and certainly desire for those things aren't bad, right? Desire for marriage is good. Desire for babies is good. Desire for rest is good. Desire for promotion and job. It's all good. It's all good. But it, but it can go awry and those desires can be pursued in the wrong way. And when they're pursued in the wrong way and bring bad fruit out of our hearts and out of our life, then the presence of covetousness can be discerned. So thirdly and finally, let's spend the rest of our time this morning talking about defeating it. Defeating it. We've defined it. We've discerned it, I hope. And I hope that you feel like me. Good grief. I need help. I need Jesus. I need God's word. I need the Holy Spirit to help me fight these rogue desires in my heart that I do not want to be there. So let me offer four simple biblical encouragements as a means of waging war against covetousness in our hearts. Number one, here's the first one. We need to be crushed by covetousness. If you see this as a small thing in your life, 
if, if I see this as something that's, ah, yeah, it's there sometimes. But if we don't see how ugly, truly ugly this desire is, and truly wrong and sinful and to be despised and to re- rejected and to be a form of idolatry and to be not named among saints and all the things that Paul says about it and, and the fact that he says that those who are covetousness shall not inherit the kingdom of God, if we don't see that and get crushed by it and say, good grief, I'm in trouble, we're not hearing the law correctly. Because remember, the first point of the law is to help us see our sin. Jesus put this this desire, covetousness, in Mark 7, 21 and 22, right up there with murder and adultery, as equally evil and heinous. It is. It's as heinous as murder and adultery is. People who habitually and unrepentantly covet, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I said those words carefully. Habitually and unrepentantly covet. We covet as God's people. But we don't do so habitually, and we don't do so unrepentantly. Ephesians 5, 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, did I say that, or did God say that? God says that. I'm the mailman, I'm just delivering the mail. I didn't invent it. Don't get mad. Ephesians 5.5 5 says that those who are habitually and unrepentantly covetousness have no right to think that they're going to heaven. Romans 7, 7 and 8. This is what the command to co- not covet did to the Apostle Paul. It crushed him. Apostle Paul was a really good guy. He was a stand-up Pharisee. He was a religious leader. And what was the, ultimately his undoing? His covetous heart. He says so much in Ephesians, or Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Listen to what, this is Paul's own testimony about what the law you shall not covet did to him. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. See, that's one of the purposes of the law. Help us understand sin. Help us know what sin is. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, Paul says in Romans 7, 8, verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. See, that's what the law does. If we try to attack the law with more law, what we get is more lawlessness. In other words, if we try to defeat the law by being law-keeping, we get more lawless. That's what happened with Paul. He says, okay, I understand. We shouldn't covet. I understand. It crushed me. And then when it started to teach me, guess what happened? All sorts of covetousness started coming. And I started feeling more and more covetous. And then he gets to the ends of Romans 7, and what does he say? Wretched man that I am, who's going to save me from this body of death? Praise be to Jesus who delivers us and gives us the victory. As Francis Schaeffer once wrote, Thou shalt not covet is the internal commandment which shows the man who thinks himself to be moral that he really needs a savior. (laughs) Right? It gets us all. If we get through the first nine commandments, which I'm quite convinced that none of us, maybe, hopefully, none of us here feels like we, we made an A on that test. As we went through, we're all failing. But in case you feel like you got like a C minus, this puts you in the F category. Puts all of us in the F. Right? All of us are there. 
Schaefer goes on and says, The average such moral man who has lived comparing himself to other men and comparing himself to a rather easy set of rules, we could say our own rules, which we always meet, can feel like Paul that he's getting along all right. But suddenly, when he is confronted with the inward command not to covet, he's brought to his knees. He's brought to his knees. Well, may God do that for all of us. We need to be brought to our knees before God's word and before God's law. Not so that we'll wallow, not so that we'll, 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 we'll do penance, not so that we'll try harder, but so that we will be brought to the reality that apart from God, we have no hope. Apart from a Savior, we have no hope. So that's what the law is first. And that's the first step to defeating covetous, is to recognize how consumed with covetousness we are. When we get there, we've got hope. Until we're convinced of that, nothing else I'm going to say is going to help. If you're not brought to your knees before that reality, these other three are going to mean nothing, and you're going to go along about your covetous ways. But if you hear that, and it's, oh, it breaks me, I don't want to be that way, I don't like it, I don't like sin seizing an opportunity in my life and producing all this unrighteousness in me. Well, good, because we've got hope now. So number one is we need to be crushed by covetousness. Number two, we need to be content in circumstances. We need to be content in circumstances. Now, I'm going to get how we get there. Contentment is not something that we chase after. It's something we rest in. It's something we acknowledge. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, I have learned in whatever situation to be content. The Apostle Paul believed in a sovereign God, and he trusted in this God who reigns over heaven and earth, and he knew God's providence provided what he needed. Paul was convinced that whatever he possessed, it was sufficient so he could rest content. Do you feel that way? Do I feel that way? Whatever we have, it's sufficient, and we rest content. If God thought it was good for us to have more, he would have given us more. When we covet, we don't believe that God is big enough to help us or good enough to care. Our discontentment is an expression of how much we think God owes us. Every Christian rightly seeks to maintain this mindset. Covetousness and contentment are opposites. Covetousness says, I need that. I won't be happy without that. It isn't fair I don't have it. I want that more than anything else. Contentment says, I have what I need. I'm happy in the Lord. He does good to all. I want nothing more than what I have from him. They're complete opposites. So we battle covetousness with pursuit of contentment. And how do we get there? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context. It's not the, it's not the touchdown interview. That's not the context. Scored the touchdown, slammed the ball. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, including blast past that defender. No, the main context is contentment. So when you get tackled on the field and don't catch the ball and miss the touchdown, then you get and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, include losing the Super Bowl. Praise Jesus. And we got, you know, players do that. That's great. And it's a great expression of what the true meaning of contentment is and what it means to do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So the point of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens you is you can handle disappointment well. You can handle disillusionment well. You can handle not having all that you want well. That's what it means to have the power of Christ strengthen you. So that's available to us, praise his name. We need to be crushed by covetous, number one. We need to be content in circumstances, number two. Number three, we need to be conscious of complaining. We need to be conscious of complaining. Maybe the greatest force we can muster against coveting is thankfulness. 
thankfulness will help us kill covetousness. You can't covet somebody else's stuff if you're thankful for your stuff. Right? If you're thankful, you don't, it's let, you're less inclined to covet. You covet because you think you need and you deserve and you should have. Therefore, you're not thankful for what you have, so you're driven by covetousness. Thankfulness steers the Christian life away from the dangerous ditches of discontentment and covetousness. We should thank God for what we've received and what he has given. Remember James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes from above. Therefore, we not only rejoice in what we personally receive, but also in the good gifts the Lord has granted to others. And we praise God for those. So let me give you a Charlie Brown illustration. Snoopy, one time, was sitting on the top of his doghouse, and it's Thanksgiving. He's bitter in his spirit because Charlie Brown and the family are having this huge feast inside their house, inside, inside their house but Snoopy's stuck in the doghouse with, uh, with just his dog food. And he's kind of grousing and complaining about it, that, and that is until a thought occurs to him, and he says to himself, look, it could be worse. I could have been born a turkey. <laughs> right? It's all a matter of perspective. So what freed him from covetousness and wanting to be inside at the table with Charlie Brown and the gang was that he was a dog, and he had dog food, and he wasn't a turkey. So whenever we're tempted to covet or wallow in dissatisfaction, say this, could be worse, could be a lot worse, and then say, I don't even deserve what I have. Can you do that from your heart every day of your life? With God's help, we can. With God's help, we can. We can say, it could be worse. I love Dave Ramsey. It's better than I deserve, right? Every day of our lives, better than I deserve, better than I deserve, better than I deserve. I don't even deserve this. What we deserve is hell. Everything else is just amazing grace. Everything. So, we need to be crushed by covetousness. We need to be content in circumstances. We need to be conscious of complaining. And you, if you're like me, you're like, yeah, I know all that. My covetousness crushes me. I want to be content in my circumstances. I'm very conscious of my complaining. I need help. And I'm, and I'm here to say, you are not left to your own resources to do that. Because the final point is the most important point. We need to be consumed with Christ. We need to be consumed with Christ. A heart that is consumed with Christ, that covets Christ. One thing have I desired of the Lord. And that's what I'll seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. You got that heart? Whom have I in heaven but you? On earth, nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is a Christian. He saw a treasure hidden in a field. And he went and sold it and bought that field. Sold everything he had and bought that field. What's the treasure? Jesus is the treasure. He's worth selling everything for. So we got to rearrange the price tags in our life. we got to prize what's most valuable. Look to Christ. Look to the things above, Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. C.S. Lewis said, when we pursue earth, we only get earth. If we pursue heaven, we get earth thrown in. If your eyes are fixed on the earth, all you get is earth. You're not going to heaven. But if you pursue heaven, God throws many kind gifts along the way. 
That's what he says in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. What's that? Clothes and family and food and what you need. And even things that you don't need that the generous father just throws in your lap. The more we value Christ, the less we ascribe inordinate worth to lesser things. Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as garbage, rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. That's what Paul said when he looked at all the rest. All said, you can throw everything at me, all that the world has to offer, and even when it's, you put it all in the scales, everything the world has to offer, Christ. Christ is worth more. As one pastor said, he who has all the world's goods and Christ has no more than he who has Christ only. If you've got everything the world offers and you've got Christ, you've got no more than the person who has Christ. In fact, according to the Bible, you may have less because Christ often gives more of himself to those who want more of him. The more we desire Christ, the less we long for the things of this world, honor, wealth, material possessions, reputation, worldly success, and even health possess little glimmer compared to Christ. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money. He could have said, don't covet. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's the argument. But listen, if that, if that doesn't keep a person's heart from the love of money, that God is with them, what does that say about their value of God? Right? But to, the, to, our, to a Christian's heart, to our heart, we hear, God will not leave me. God will not forsake me. Yeah, I've got everything I need. I will, I've got everything I need. And whatever he chooses to give. Aren't you thankful that Christ did not covet his equality with the Father, but emptied himself and counted himself as nothing for our sake? We're saved because Jesus didn't covet. He was sitting up there in heaven, enjoying the worship of angels. He was enjoying the blessed delights and fellowship of the Trinity. And he said, I'll forsake this for a time. I will not covet this great position this equality with God in, in position that I enjoy. And instead, I will go to earth and I will live a perfect life in a sin-cursed earth where I, will, where I will be misunderstood and receive ridicule and unbelief and persecution and ultimately die with a few friends at my side for their sake. And when Satan tried to get in and disrupt that plan in Matthew chapter 4, when he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted... When he was offered everything, Satan threw every covetous option he could at him. Here, I'll, I'll give you the greatest place of power. I'll give you the greatest uh, position. I'll give you the greatest popularity. I'll give you the greatest pleasure. Jesus rejected it all. He said, no, I'm not going to covet. I'm not going to covet. And he did that for us. And then at the very end of his life, when the cross stands before him, and he says to the Father in Matthew 26, that there's another way, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, I don't covet that. Not my will, but yours be done. And because he embraced the cross, because he resisted the devil, because he forsook equality with God, he's our Savior, brothers and sisters. We have a, a, a Savior who loved us so much, and he demonstrated that great love by his unwillingness to covet. 
Luke 9.51 says that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was determined to die for us. He was determined to rise again for our salvation. And brothers and sisters, that kind of love is the only love that will melt your heart to make it covetousness free. (laughs) Or at least covetous decreased. Because it's that love, it's seeing that Christ being consumed with his great compassion, being moved by his great sacrifice, that we have the price tags rearranged. And we say, you know what? I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. God has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. If you're here this morning and you have yet to come to Christ, I hold him out as a savior to you this morning. Come to him. If you felt convicted by this sin, of the sin of covetousness, as we all should and as we all have, and, but yet you have not come to Christ personally and placed your faith and trust completely in him, you are going to stand before God one day and give an account of your life. And you do not want to stand there outside of Christ. Come to Christ. Receive him as your righteousness. Receive him as the payment for your sin. Entrust your soul, your eternity, all of it to him, and he will save you from your sin and bring you safely into his eternal kingdom. So worship team, if you'll come forward, we'll stand together in just a moment and sing together of God's great grace to us. And may God, even as we sing this morning, free our hearts to love him and to desire him because he is the pearl of great price. And he is the, he is the choice among 10,000. So let's, let's stand together and I'll lead us in prayer as we begin to sing in a moment. Father, as we stand to our feet now, we acknowledge our sin before you. We confess that we are covetousness. We are covetous. That for those of us in Christ, while covetousness no longer reigns, it does still remain. And we want to wage war against it. And we thank you that you've given your Holy Spirit to us. We thank you that you have provided us a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have your word to, to speak truth to us in the hard places and to help us reorient our lives around what is true. Thank you for the opportunity to soak our minds in your word this morning. Renew our minds according to your word. Grant us that we would live more consistently with what we've heard this morning. Grant us that the things we desire would be you. Grant us that you would be uppermost in our affections, that you would be chief in our affections, that if we, if we lose everything but we have you in the ultimate scheme of things, we've lost nothing. Even though... We long and have good desires in this life for good things. May we be like Job and say, blessed is the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. The Lord is the point. And so we thank you for the opportunity to to recalibrate our hearts now and worship you and sing to you and move in our hearts in these moments as we respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.